Interlibrary Loan The Razor's Edge by W. Somerset Moom Hello everyone and welcome back to another episode of Interlibrary Loan, the show where a couple of friends uh, grab a book that is worth discussing, read it together, and then discuss it. We are beginning a new book today, W. Somerset Mom's classic novel, The Razor's Edge, published in 1944. I would say it's pretty timeless. Well, I mean, not timeless in the sense that you can't date it, but... um, It is a historical novel that takes place at like very specific historical moments, but I know what you mean. Indeed, but the content of it is timeless, I believe. This is from the man who couldn't pronounce mom. <laughs> I thought it was pronounced mom. We looked this up, like, you're right, I, Katie, I had to look it up on mom. Wikipedia and look up the the, the actual, like, uh, international... Like the, f- yeah, yeah, phonetic. The phonetic pronunciation, and yeah. it's mom. Anyway, okay, we haven't good. been redu- introduced yet, so we should shut up. No, we haven't. Uh, as always, I'm Katie. I'm Sky. And I'm Lauren. All right, cool. Now we can talk. <laughs> now the we secret can, yeah, is out. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. There are more people on this podcast. Before we jump right in, just a small amount of background info, I suppose. So Mom was a British playwright and novelist. Um, he did serve in World War One with the Red Cross and the Ambulance Corps, and then also served as an intelligence operative for a while. He later traveled in India and Southeast Asia, which is quite obviously influential to his works, and kind of similar to some of his contemporaries, um, definitely inserted a lot of Eastern philosophy into his works, kind of even before it was really popularized by the beats. Some major themes for this novel to keep in mind are obviously existentialism and uh, sort of like deriving meaning in a meaningless world. This is a novel that I read in high school and uh, have not really uh, picked up since, so I'm excited to, to get into it. I, w- I was like intrigued when you recommended this novel, Katie. Um, I've never read anything by Somerset Mom. Um, and I knew sort of his works only through reputation, but they're often compared to the novels of Herman Hesse, one of his contemporaries. And I read uh, Sid Arthur and Journey to the East and some other Herman Hesse novels uh, when I was about the same age as you, when I was in like high school and, and college. Uh, and they really like spoke to me. So I was excited to try this out. And uh, for part one, I've been, I have been uh, very pleasantly surprised. It's a, it's a very fun novel to read. Yeah. You know, I've actually never read The Razor's Edge either. So this is a first time for me and I've never read anything by Somerset Mom. Uh, but um, so far, Katie, I can start to see a lot of like the, you know, the existential quality about it and it's in some subtle ways it kind of reminds me of some other french existential literature that i've read um Mm -hmm. it's like it's but it definitely has a um a a different tone than the works of camus or sartre or you know the the french um canon in that genre which i mean presumably somerset mom was reading those authors at this time you know their earlier works at least so speaking of the razor's edge let's begin with a quick exploration of the epigraph uh that precedes the novel um and it is the sharp edge of a razor is difficult to pass over thus the wise say that the path to salvation is hard and this is from uh, the Katha Upanishad. Authors put epigraphs at the beginning of books, uh, not without import. So um, this is something to consider throughout our entire reading of the novel. Um, and just a little bit of uh, info about about the epigraph. So if you don't know, the Katha Upanishad is a Hindu scripture. Um, and it's... I looked this up (laughs) because (laughs) I couldn't remember what it was, (laughs) but it is the legendary story of a little boy, uh, Nachiketa, the son of, not even going to try to pronounce that name, uh, who meets Yama, the Indian deity of death. Uh, And their conversation evolves to a discussion of the nature of man, knowledge, Atman, which is soul or self, and Moksha, which is liberation. Clearly, the epigraph should inform us as to, like, the quest of our character, one of our main characters in the book, at least. I wondered, we spent a long time, um, when we read The Handmaid's Tale, talking about people in the desert not having signs that say, thou shalt not eat stones. 
And mm-hmm. reading this epigraph, I wonder what specifically is meant here by the, it says the the edge of a razor is difficult to pass over. What do what does pass over mean here? Does it mean like usually people talk about like walking a razor's edge as if you're like walking on a razor's edge and it's easy to fall off, but mm-hmm. also like a razor is sharp. Like, do they mean like it's difficult to like pass over a razor in some way without getting yourself cut? Like, what what is the nature of the razor and passing over? I mean, I it kind of doesn't matter for our conversation what that means in the Upanishad, but like, what does that mean in the context of this novel? What is what is uh, Somerset Maugham saying about getting into enlightenment in his novel, in this yep. epigraph? And that's we'll find the out. question that we should ask. Yeah, we'll find out. <laughs> we'll find I mean, out. we never found out whether it was candide or optimism, but maybe Somerset Maugham <laughs> will tell us what he means here. We can only hope. And you know what? Margaret Atwood never told us why uh, Thou Shalt Not Eat Stones was important. Um, <laughs> it's one of those riddles. Right? That hopefully you can, uh, you out can you solve as you read. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Yeah. Uh, we begin part one, and um, basically the narrator is sort of the author himself who has sort of inserted himself somewhat into the into the novel but he says first off this is not a novel yeah this first little chapter in part one is really heavy-handed he um he does a lot of explanation of you know what this book is and isn't that you don't typically see at the beginning of a of a novel yeah like and he he even he does the thing where he says like you know this this is a true account and like I've changed the names to protect the innocent, although he doesn't <laughs> say it that way. But you know, yeah. And then it talks about, like, you say he he's he's British, and he says, oh yeah. And another note uh, that the characters these these American characters, I've written them as well as a British person can. <laughs> I don't know. I just thought it was kind of funny. Yeah, I think like that's something that is uh, at least a theme in this first section and, and will I imagine it be a theme throughout the novel is the experience of being a foreigner but also like more specifically the experience of being sort of like an expat the idea that like when you observe and and live among and really experience the life of uh, another people or another country you do come to know them in a very intimate way, but you can never really hope to fully capture them or fully become one of them. I think that's something mm-hmm. that is a sort of constant presence, uh, at least in this first section. Yeah, this first section where he talks, where he, like you were saying, Katie, that he talks about the um, talking about how he's changed names and how the, these are this is a true story, but he's modified certain details to to maintain anonymity. Really reminds me of some of the introductions you see in 18th century epistolary novels where people talk about stumbling upon troves of letters and you know are weaving together a story that really happened and they've like you know changed dates and some minor details but it's a real story and you know that's supposed to like be the hook to you know to get you to dive into the you know salacious tales of you know sir baron whatever you know um (laughs) but it but in this case he's talking about the kind of something that's a little bit more at least from this first part seems to be a little bit more profound like the you know the individual kind of intellectual and spiritual discovery of people um and putting that forward as a true story and so i think that's kind of an interesting take on this like on the you know true story. the trope of yeah. like the yeah yeah, the yeah. Trope of the true story exactly so after mom tells us uh like prefaces his not novel with this information uh he mm-hmm. dives right in um, and we're set in Chicago in 1919. He first introduces us to Elliot Templeton. Oh, Elliot Templeton. We get a lot of description of Elliot Templeton and a very good idea of who Elliot Templeton is in this first section. So who is Elliot Templeton? A snob. The greatest yeah. of snobs. The arch snob. A snob, but, but 
but not a bad person. I really think that Somerset Mom is using the word snob in a very different way than most people nowadays use it. Maybe it's a different mm-hmm. way than Americans use it. Yeah, it, may be a, it also may be a, a cultural difference, but like the way that Somerset Mom uses the word snob in this novel is very different than the way that like I understand the term snob, and I think that's an interesting distinction. Yeah, because really, from the description of Elliot Templeton, basically what... What, what I understand him to be is a man of, of, of pretty decent status and who is basically a social butterfly um, and who has a lot of connections and, like, seems to know everybody. Um, and who's kind of seemed to dedicate his life to social climbing and social development. Yeah. yeah. Um, but that also a man who, and mom makes note to say that he's, but he, he's, he's very generous and he loves to give. Um, and like he enjoys, he talks about uh, like like Templeton insisting on buying him things that that he wanted, uh, and saying that like he's great at haggling to get good prices, and it's just a thing that he liked to do. And in fact, Mom's description of Templeton, or I guess the narrator, the the you know author characters uh, description of Templeton, really starts out with saying like, you know, like. You know, ladies might sort of say with scorn that he was an ant- an art dealer or an antiques dealer. I think he even just says a dealer. Um, but of course, like Elliot Templeton would deny vehemently that he was, you know, so so base. Uh, you know, had so base a profession as as an antiques dealer. Um, but you know, you learn from Mom's description and throughout the course of the section, like that's totally what he is. Like he is he is an art and antiques dealer. He has great taste, and he uses his taste and knowledge to sort of get his foot into the door of every level of society and then from there he can you know become this sort of like uh classy gentleman type figure yeah this very elegant and distinguished individual but i think what's most important is that he's he's american he's just this guy from america who decided that he was going to like speak with an english accent and move to paris and become like the classiest dude well because yeah a man with such class as elliot templeton just needed to be in paris right i wonder how much the nobles that he interacts with like look down upon his like practiced like obsessive class and uh and taste you know i don't know i think in part of it is that in order to have access to those kind of spaces in american society so much of it is limited to you know based on i mean i'm talking i'm talking several decades later but from from personal experience if you want to have that kind of like appreciation of the arts and intellectual exchange in america you need to either be in like academic circles or highly like like elite wealthy circles and for we i mean we don't really know much about elliot templeton's background but perhaps it was easier to do social climbing kind of laterally by going across you know distances and geographies in order to do that rather than doing it you know then climbing within his own social sphere in in america i think for the the class and taste oriented in america especially at this time too though like going to europe was the only option yeah like at one point in this section he says like yeah, I don't know why you would ever want to live in Chicago, basically. Um, and he seems to have a a real disdain for Americans. Um, in some senses, Elliot Templeton... I think this is why Elliot Templeton's so interesting as a character, is that in some senses he's this like stock character. He's like the Fraser Crane of the story. All I got was some attitude and a cheap glass of wine. Loire Valley, my ass. <laughs> but, it, but at the same time, he is more than that right he's like more complex than that he's more interesting that he's more um he's he's not this caricature but has some real depth and this generosity that we that both the author writes about with some hint of irony but like but but not entirely ironically um and he's kinder you know yeah we see that throughout this part of the story that he's not just a machine you know or just a mm-hmm. an obsessive man who is obsessed with 
like maintaining status or attaining status um so yeah it's it's kind of impressive how in like 50 pages uh somerset mom really creates this man in out of whole cloth and sort of in it in his entirety Templeton is in Chicago uh, for a while to visit his his sister, uh, Louisa Bradley, and her daughter, his niece Isabel. And so he's he's invited the the narrator, um, Mom, the character, to come to lunch his at his sister's house, and talks about like that he and his and his niece are trying to uh, like they've arranged he's arranged this lunch with this like great designer to try so that he and his niece can uh, try to convince um, Mrs. Bradley to redesign her house because it's ugly. <laughs> yep, and the description of it that is given it's like I've definitely been in rich people's houses that are like that. It's just like a whole bunch of extravagant things that only a rich person could afford, but just sort of like all thrown together without much regard for decor. Well, and also just a bunch of odds and ends that she picked up in every different, you know, every in the various countries that she's traveled to and lived in and, you know, threw all together in one room. I actually think that this kind of decoration, which is described in, um, in Mrs. Bradley's house, is sort of more acceptable in high society in America now than it would have been at the time that this was written and at the, at the time that this takes place. Like, um, Yeah, it's, you could almost consider it a little bit bohemian and eccentric in the sense Yeah, or like eclectic, eclectic at, you know, yeah. or, at, or, or even like kitsch. But like when you, you know, when you're a wealthy person and you travel the world and can get the finest things from around the world, that's something that I think now is more acceptable in wealthy circles than it would have been at this time when wealthy Americans would have still been expected to follow the fashions of Europe. Yeah. Um, So they bring in this this guy. What's his name? Um, Mr. Brabazon. Yeah, Brabazon. They bring in Brabazon to to modernize the place. Yeah, and mom is just kind of on the outskirts of this, and it in- instantly, like, like he's been he's been introduced to Mrs. Bradley now, and um, she asks him how how is Queen Margarita? Yeah, <laughs> and then like when 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 the narrator's like, I what are you talking about? I don't she's, know the queen. Like she like doesn't believe him and is like insulted that like she's like, don't mess with me. I know you know her. Oh, yeah, but she's so and then nice. this is like, this is like a joke that comes up later too. It's great. I love it. Yeah, <laughs> she's convinced that 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 he knows the queen, or, or that any any decent person must know the queen. Is it ever yeah, established yeah. that Elliot knows this per- this queen? Like, is he, is she assuming that he that the author must know the queen because Elliot knows the queen, or is it and and because this is a friend of Elliot? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, mm-hmm. I want, I don't know if that's ever made like clear, but it's yeah, it's this thing that keeps coming up that's really silly. Yeah. Oh. Um. So. So yeah, there. Uh, Mr. Brabazon is there, and um, there's there's quick mention of someone named Larry or Lawrence Daryl um and like she mentions offhand that oh he's not here and Isabel's out golfing um with him right there um he's I think it's mentioned that like he's Isidore uh is I'm sorry uh that that Larry is Isabel's fiance yes um, but then immediately after, uh, Isabel arrives um, with Larry in tow. And so we're introduced to Isabel, who is like the narrator describes her as like really young and kind of fresh looking um, and makes Elliot Templeton seem plain, even though he is obviously described as like very distinguished looking. Um, but there's something about Isabel. She's like this bright, young, vivacious girl, even if uh, described several times by the narrator as like being fat. 
I don't know why that's an obsession, but it is. This is this early 20th century thing. You see it in a lot of early 20th century novels. Uh, Hemingway, Baldwin, a lot of early to mid 20th century novelists will describe women as fat. I think it has yeah, to. Yeah, that's right. As far as I can tell, this has to do. It's like a preoccupation almost. And as far as I can tell, it has to do with the rapidly changing standards of ideal beauty during this period. So we're coming off yeah. the 19th century when, like, um, when like a, a a certain like plumpness in women was was supposed was like the ideal beauty was standard desirable. and desirable to by this time in the mid 20th century like the 40s and 50s when novelists like well Hemingway had done most of his writing by then but like novelists like Somerset Maugham and like James Baldwin and others were writing like the standard of beauty rapidly becomes this a a like you know skinny wayfish uh like you know, fashion model type figure. And I, so I think that's why there's such a preoccupation with describing women's figures during this period, but it, it's not a great look. Um, no, it seems, it, it, is, it definitely it seems, seems like Somerset, right. Like Somerset mom seems like incredibly preoccupied with describing the figure of like every female character in this book. And it, it's like really awkward. Yeah. He... It's, 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 it's jarring. Uh, you know, that's that's the one kind of jarring thing, I think. Um, he made a comment about when he was describing Mrs. Bradley, um, he said that her face was almost aggressively destitute of makeup. And yeah. I was just I was just kind of baffled. Well, she's a, she's a widow, right? Like, right. So she's like. You know, uh, yeah. but it's just like it's just such a bizarre thing to read that it that's that was a moment where it definitely felt like I was reading something that seemed out of place, like that just seemed almost like an inappropriate descriptor. Yeah, I mean, as much as this novel is about like breaking society's bonds and like questioning societal norms. Like Somerset Mom is still a writer writing from this particular historical period and has the sort of like blind spots and prejudices of his time. So I think that's something like exactly. that will yeah. keep coming up in certain ways throughout the book that we should that we should keep out an eye out for. Exactly. Uh, but so this Isabel uh, comes in and immediately like with with her uncle kind of gang up with Mr. Brabazon trying to convince um, Mrs. Bradley to redo her egregiously ugly home. Uh, And, like, Mom is struck by the young fellow who's come in trailing after Isabel and this Larry Larry Darrell person. Um, And says, you know, like, Larry hasn't spoken yet. Um, but, but for some reason, mom is like struck by him and says like, he's kind of like pleasant looking, although a bit of kind of plain. Um, and even though he hasn't spoken, he seems like really engaged and like part of the conversation. And, uh, another thing that he notes that I, I, I just really like about his appearance. He talks about his eyes being like super dark and having these peculiar eyes yeah, I, I I mean, I have, like, some misgivings about this, but, like, Somerset Mom spends a lot of time in this novel physically describing all of the characters. I mean, at times, it almost seems like this phrenology-type thing where he's trying to, like, mm-hmm. show you these char- the character of these people through their physical appearance, yep. which, like, nowadays we would not really take seriously, but at the time was something that people did routinely um, it's but, kind of an in- interesting exercise. Oh, absolutely. And his writing is very captivating. I mean, like, you know, whether you want to take it that, like, as a sort of, like, fortune-telling way to tell who these people are or not, like, it's it's entertaining and interesting and really adds to the novel for him to describe everyone like this. I mean, and that's, that's maybe a, that's a trend in literature that is kind of, you know, trickled down even into contemporary popular literature. You see even J.K. Rowling does this in Harry Potter. She spends tons of time like, Yeah, I'm not always crazy about that either, but, but sure. Yeah. But I think it's important to say that though he does spend quite a bit of time uh, on these physical descriptions, he does also develop the characters really well through um, through dialogue. Um, so it's not as though we only learn who Larry is by 
mom's like obsession with the way that he looks. Ex- oh, this and this this section where Larry Daryl is um, is introduced really sh- showcases that. I mean, his um, like the first time that Larry Daryl speaks like is a huge moment. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It's it's one of my favorite quotes of from this first section because like Isabel and her uncle are poking fun at at Louisa, at her mother, and um so she asks she asks Larry, "What do you think, Larry?" and he says, "I don't think it matters one way or the other." And uh, so Isabel says, you beast, Larry, I particularly told you to back us up. And his response, if Aunt Louisa is happy with what she's got, what is the object of changing? And that's like the really the first thing that 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 mom hears Larry say at all. Uh, And I think that's a a, a pretty good introduction to the character of Larry. Yeah, because he's neither dismissive. Like mom has made it clear that that Larry Daryl is not dismissive of the conversation taking place. He's engaged with it. But ultimately, he just says, "Like, why are we here? Why are we doing this?" And it's just—it's yeah, not the point, right? And it's—and again, it's not dismissive. He's just genuinely like trying to, you know, figure this out, and also pointing out, like, I don't understand why we're so like focused on this. This doesn't seem to be important. Yeah, yeah. What What is the importance of 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 the appearance of these worldly things? Yeah, and he seems to kind of have the same credulity about, you know, the need to change the decorations of a room as he does about later on that we discover about the need to settle down and find a, you know, a, a good job. Yeah, the, like the first thing, even like before we're introduced to like the real peculiarity of Larry which everyone is hung up on like why doesn't Larry have a job why isn't Larry looking for a job the first thing that we hear from Larry is basically questioning like what's the what's the point what's the meaning right and specifically because um because Mrs. Bradley is or Aunt Louisa is not interested in or or is happy with what she's got and is not interested in changing. Like he doesn't just say like, hey guys, material things are stupid. We should all be spiritual. Yeah. Like he's not interested in that. He's just saying like, hey, this is like Aunt Louisa's house and she doesn't seem to care very much and likes what she has. Why are we trying to force her to do something differently? Yeah. Yeah. Um he seems he seems surprisingly immune to the social pressures that the rest of the this cast of characters um, is, are are very sensitive to, and it's it's striking. It's a very striking comparison when you have you know when you have Elliot who is kind of like a creature of and who has formed and cultivated an existence around these various pressures and tastes that pull him in various directions and then you know and then larry walks in and it's just kind of like he 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 makes it all seem like you you kind of see the the edge of the of the veneer or the wallpaper you know you understand the the perhaps the the racers yeah exactly (laughs) (laughs) there we go that's that's the whole point of the book we're done Yep, we figured out what the racer's edge is, guys. We can we can pack this one up and go home. The sharp edge of a razor is difficult to pass over. Thus the wise say that the path to salvation is hard. Uh, but we also learn that Larry was a pilot um, and that he served in the war. Hmm. Uh, even though he actually wasn't old enough. Isabel, I think, says she... Um, like he he managed to convince people the the recruiters that he was eighteen. Yeah, Not in the U.S. either. In Canada, yeah. he like ran away to Canada and then like figured out how to get them to say he was eighteen. Uh, and so he he was a pilot, um, served for a year, and then came back. And he came back a changed man. Yes, we hear mostly from from the people who surround him, though we don't really get much information from larry about himself we get most a lot from sophie so so mom goes to this is invited to this dinner party and he feels very out of place here because it's mostly 
Isabel and Larry and their friends, who are all much much younger than than the than the narrator, um, and so he's sort of like his guide to this like social circle is a 17 year old girl named Sophie who goes through all the different people and explains you know who Larry and Isabel are and he sort of already knew them and but then all of these other people including uh, Gary Matarin who's uh, a giant man who uh, had a heart problem as a result of playing football and so never served in the war uh, and he's in some sort of like love triangle with Isabel and uh, Larry uh, and, you know, various other people. Uh, she also introduces us to Dr. Nelson, who is Larry's guardian and also a heavy drinker. Yep. And so we learn that Larry's parents, Larry's uh, mother died in childbirth and his father died 12 years before this part of the story. And so, yeah, he was mm-hmm. raised by this Dr. Nelson, who at one point, at one point, Dr. Nelson is like, they basically like take Dr. Nelson to task for like not raising Larry properly. And Dr. Nelson's like, Hey, what do you guys want me to do? Like, I'm not his real parent. Like, I did this as a favor to my friend who died. And also, like, I if he were my own child, I might have, like, beat him or something. But, like, I couldn't do that. He wasn't my kid. Um, I thought that was, like, a really interesting part where they sort of, like, all gang up on Dr. Nelson and accuse him of being a poor parent. And he, like, defends himself. Uh, but he also, Dr. Nelson also does say... Um... It's one of the first times, but not the last time we hear it, that that Larry came back from the war a changed person. Um, he said something happened there that that changed him, and he hasn't been the same since. They're all they're all talking about Larry at this dinner party, and the narrator uh, mom is pretty uncomfortable about this, and he kind of kind of listens to it for a while and just notes that you know they they all seem to have quite an opinion about about Larry and what he he should do, and. Um, we learned that Larry, since he got back from the war, has not really taken an interest in doing anything. He's received several job offers, including one from Mr. Maturin, um, Gray's father, has given him an offer to come to his firm. Um, and Gray, uh, being Larry's best friend, is like super excited about this. You know, they could work together in an office. Uh, we learned that like Dr. Nelson wanted Larry to go to college when he got back, but Larry didn't want to. Um, and he's basically refused every job offer that he's gotten. Um, and base with his, the only explanation being like, oh, I don't really know what I want to do. Like the only thing that that has happened since he's gotten back from the war is that he has become engaged to Isabel. And we learn that Louisa is perfectly happy with this and thinks they're great for each other. In particular, that particularly that Isabel is really good for Larry. But her condition on them getting married is that Larry needs to be working. Basically, she wants Dr. Nelson to to, to nudge him along and get him to, to take a job. As you said, Sky Gray, that Gray is in this weird uh, love triangle situation where um, he's in love with Isabel, but he's also Larry's best friend. And when Larry went off to the war, Gray spent a lot of time with Isabel and he even like proposed to her, didn't he? Yes, mm-hmm. he did. And she said basically, maybe. Um, yeah. But then as soon as Larry got back from the war, she said, like, nope, sorry, Larry's back and I'm with him now. And so now there's, like, all this discussion about what what should happen with these young people. And Elliot says he thinks that Isabel should marry Gray because he is from a good family and has money. This was interesting. This was, like, the narrator has gotten inside information from Sophie that Gray's sort of heritage is of lowly stock. But Elliot yeah. sort of, like, foolishly assumes that, like, based on the last name Matarin, that Gray is from some sort of, like, distinguished family. And then, and the author is just like, mm, I chose not to, like, repeat what Sophie had told me about the, like, uh, shanty Irish stock that, like, Gray had come from. <laughs> the shanty Irishman and the Swedish waitress. <laughs> yeah. Who, who were Gray's grandfather and grandmother. I, I don't know about you guys. I mean, I'm, 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 I, I, I love the, the narrator. He's like, he's super wry. Yeah. I mean, you get the sense that the narrator takes an interest and a liking to Larry because he feels a sort of kinship with Larry and mm-hmm. that both of them are people who observe a lot and mm-hmm. form a lot of opinions, but are sort of like 
easygoing and like you know like the narrator is hanging out with elliot all the time but mostly just he kind of stands in the wings and lets elliot shine and you know and and is amused simply by observing elliot perform and kind of and and i'm sure elliot doesn't mind elliot seems to like performing so yeah and i mean maybe that's one key difference between the narrator and larry is that the narrator sees all these things and notes them to us the reader but doesn't say them to the other characters whereas larry will speak his mind uh, as he does with Aunt Louise's uh, decor. Well, and uh, Isabel talks about the character mom's um, tendencies towards observation when they go to the drugstore, and she says that that's one of the things mm-hmm. that Elliot told her about him that made him a good writer was his ability, his 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 perceptive abilities and his his ability to read people and understand people and and that he's a you know a good judge of character right. and also that that he yeah he he has like a perceptive quality about him so our dear perceptive narrator goes to the library um at the at the club where he's been staying and who is there but our new friend larry kind of goes up to him and it's this really like weird and interesting way that that this encounter goes because he walks up to him and this kid is sitting here reading a book and he kind of asks like oh uh what are you reading and he so he shows him the book and it's william james's principles of psychology mom notes he says it is exceedingly readable but it is not the sort of book i should have expected to see in the hands of a very young man an aviator who had been dancing till five in the morning uh which is is what Larry was doing previously the night before. And he asked him, why are you reading that? And basically Larry just doesn't respond for a while. You get the the feeling that if any two other people were having this conversation, it would be supremely awkward. But both of them are like patient and idiosyncratic enough that like it, they don't think it's as awkward as, I mean, I think they both think it's a little awkward maybe, but like, any two other people having this exchange, it would be like the most awkward exchange. Right. I think it's interesting though that when he does respond though, he says that he's reading it because he's very ignorant. <laughs> That's most people who are ignorant don't fess up to being ignorant. It says something about Larry's character that he is able to kind of recognize his own ignorance and he is like actively combating it. And then he has this long awkward silence and then sort of voluntarily opens up to mom. Mm. Like mom doesn't really ask him anything else but then Larry kind of just offers (laughs) the question that mom probably did want to ask and that I think Larry is used to people asking him by this point. He basically tells him why he didn't want to go to college. He says, uh, you know, he didn't feel like he would fit in. And also that the things they were going to teach him were not the things that he wanted to learn. He tells mom that he doesn't know his purpose. And mom finds this really odd because him being a writer, he has always sort of known his purpose. Um, Feels that he knows what he wants to do. Um, And here's this kid, this bright young kid, oddly sympathetic, and who he notes, like, he doesn't talk a lot. But when he does talk, it seems to be very thoughtful. Moreover, Larry also knows that, you know, they were all talking about him at at this party last night. So mom kind of asks what they were talking about him last night at the party. Asks him, so what do you want to do? And Larry replies, this great response is, I want to loaf. Yeah, man, that's his, uh, that's his, I prefer not to. Yeah. It's, it's sort of what he consistently says to everyone. Um, and, it, you know, it's, in, it's funny, like, later in this section, the author says, like, relates this story about meeting him in the library and his reading to Isabel. And Isabel's like, why did you tell me this story? And the author says, well, I thought you might be worried about what he meant by loafing, and this seems to be what he means. So if you were worried about it, like, you don't have to worry that much. So Larry's loafing, which is sitting and and reading this staple of a book all day. Essentially, uh, like, a psychology textbook. Like, yeah, he's he's self-educating himself. He is. But mom says, and when he when he relates this to Isabel later, he says, you know, I was struck by his power of concentration. (laughs) 
that he was able to sit like unmoving in a chair all day because he's there when he goes for lunch he's there when he comes back later and he's still there when he when he leaves for dinner larry's sense of loafing is sitting his butt down in a chair and reading a psychology textbook all reading day. a psychology textbook yeah maybe loafing's not so bad or at least like he's not going out and carousing right it's it's, yeah. it's fairly harmless so this this section is sort of this sort of like climactic action in this section. It comes to light that um, that Larry has declined the Matarin's offer of a job, and he has this sort of confrontation. Not a confrontation, but it you know everything's brought to a head, and he discusses with Isabel and says like, I don't really want a job. I don't really want to work, but I know that it's not good for you or for your reputation or our reputation for me to just like sit around Chicago not doing anything so I'm gonna go to Paris and uh I mean you can wait for me if you want uh which is something that she does but it's interesting she brings it up she she makes the first suggestion and asks if she should go away. Well, she does, but this was also... It's important to note that this conversation they're having is a setup, too. Um, because... So they, they learn, like Templeton and Louisa, they learn um, from the Maturins that Larry has declined this offer. Mm-hmm. So then they fashion um, this... Uh, like oh they're gonna send them to to like measure for curtains or yeah curtains yeah yeah. but we'll also pack them this nice like picnic lunch or whatever and then isabel can prompt him about this and maybe with her prompting it will um encourage larry to want to take this job yeah but larry isn't fooled and yeah he sees right through it yeah so it's uh it's engineered this sort of like conflict uh, or this is sort of like conversation. It's funny, as soon as he says, well, I'm going to go to Paris for a couple years, Elliot's opinion of him turns right around. Mm. Elliot's like, yeah. well, if he wants to hang out in Paris, he, he must have like something good going on and I can take him under my wing and nudge him in the right direction. I'll even set him up with an older woman, a woman of the world that can teach him the ways of the world. And by the time he comes back to America in a couple years, if he ever wants to, I mean, why would he leave? He'll be a, a model husband. It's so funny how fast Elliot turns around on him once he once he uh, announces that he's going to Paris. Absolutely, because El- well, Elliot also I think is immediately excited at the prospect of like having a, a, like a protege. Yes, oh, yeah. absolutely, totally. Yeah, although I I have to wonder. I don't know that Larry is going to be quite the type protege that Elliot wants. I mean, maybe I'm wrong, I but I don't get the impression that Larry is going to become... A social climber yeah, and antiques dealer? No. <laughs> but gosh darn it, he can try. Yeah. Um, yeah, so, so once it's... Once it's clear that, you know, that... Larry is not going to um, to to take a job and you know settle down and and uh, and and marry Isabel right away. Um, we kind of take a turn in in and the the narrator is planning on leaving Chicago, um, mm-hmm. and the the he's saying his goodbyes and everything and. Isabel kind of slyly decides that she, you know, kind of like that she will accompany him as far as the drugstore. Um, and again, this is like, this is another, uh, another instance of like the characters trying to like to create these social pretenses for having time to actually talk about serious things. Um, Mm -hmm. and she, you know, she invites him to to have an ice cream soda and is there to basically pick his brain about about her fiance. The narrator talks as if an ice cream soda is something he has only heard about and never actually encountered, which I thought was like a funny touch. Yeah, he was like, I'll I'll try or something along yeah. those lines. <laughs> This is a distinctly American thing. Yeah, yeah it, I think it's, I mean, it's funny how much the author is, like, conscious of, like, the cultural differences between Americans and, and Brits yeah. like himself. 
Yeah. Isabel asks mom for for his opinion of Larry because as we said something that she knows from Elliot is that mom has this great power of observation. So mom kind of responds well I don't really know him but but he is like a, a very appealing sort of fellow and he's also just kind of different. And so Isabel relates uh, the story of her conversation with Larry when, when she talks to him about declining the job offer. We learn a little bit from Larry about the reason why he's come back from the war such a changed man. He just kind of, in, in the middle of this conversation with her, says the dead look so terribly dead when they're dead and doesn't really explain what he means by that and Isabel doesn't really know what to make of it and she she kind of prods him for it and he basically he reveals that so his best friend at at war was killed in in action while saving his life when Isabel is talking to mom in the ice cream parlor or the soda fountain mom doesn't really know how to talk to her about this because she asks him like what is he talking about like what what does that even mean and he tells this story about how during the war he was in uh france and you know saw uh i think he was he was in like a church uh on all saints day uh Mm -hmm. or all souls day uh and like felt this same thing he like compares his feelings to like what larry is saying and isabel basically like doesn't get it but you know that's how that's how this works right like isabel is not someone who's had to like confront this stuff and even for mom the character who is an author and who ought to be able to speak eloquently and and communicate about this kind of thing like you can't get that point across sometimes larry will bring it up but then dismisses it in the next instance so he'll you know he he gets so far as to you know say that he's seen terrible death and violence but he refuses to kind of engage yeah exactly and the this section ends with the narrator relating the story of his friend's death but the narrator says like i learned this third hand years later like years after about larry's, the event, friends. About larry's friend so like larry's mm-hmm. friend who died saving his life we get to hear that story but the author makes clear that this is a story he heard from someone else and it's a story that he heard years later but he basically is like, I don't want you to think that this is like the central mystery of this novel. It's not. Here's the story. But it's not like, you know, like I learned this later from someone else. Yeah. And this story follows basically mom and Isabel are are trying to figure out what it is that Larry is searching for. Um, and so that that situation of theirs is followed by this later account that we finally learn of of Larry's friend uh, and Larry watching his friend die. Um, and immediately after this story, so it you know the the story ends with the friend's death. It says uh, he fell back dead. He was twenty two. He was going to marry a girl in Ireland after the war. And immediately after that, um, mom, it's it's time for mom to leave, and he sets off. Uh, for for san francisco en route to the far east uh i don't know whether section two includes mom's journeys in san francisco i doubt it does but uh (laughs) if so that's our first return to san francisco since we were in uh cloud atlas oh hey Um, see it all comes together yeah welcome back to beautiful (laughs) san francisco so yeah so that's section one this section uh i think it like it's cool. It kind of has like a beginning, middle, end all in itself, but it's also obviously like the exposition for the novel. Like it's setting up the story. So I can't right. wait to see what happens to these characters in part two. There'll come a time when you regret it. So as as we always do, what were what was everyone's favorite part of this section? Oh, are we talking quotes of the week? Yeah. Quotes of the week. There was a really good line by Elliot. While they're at the party and they're talking, he's like, he's imagining this life that Isabel could have if she were to marry Gray rather than than to marry Larry. And he, you know, he's basically imagining their future. 
and and says that you know that gray could buy a, a seat on the new york stock exchange and then he says after all if you must live in america i can't see any object in living anywhere but in new york <laughs> Which I I found to be rather touching. <laughs> Certainly our co-host and friend uh, Jonathan Cox would agree. Absolutely, he would. <laughs> and uh, I don't know, to a certain extent, I, I'm sympathetic to the idea. I mean, technically we live in New Jersey, but... Well, we both work in New York. We both need work know. in New York, so... We, we live in, I mean, Jersey we, we, City, New we Jersey in, is... We, were, we live in New York light. We live in New York good. <laughs> uh, yeah. So anyway, I liked, I, I thought that was a fun quote. If you must live in America, then, then, uh, might as well, what is it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. If, if you must live in America, I can't see any object in living anywhere but New York. <laughs> might as well. I think I'm going to have to uh, choose two. One is a profound one, and one is just one that made me laugh. Yeah. Uh, so the the one that made me laugh um, is or very early on in the section. It's when we're being introduced to Templeton. Mm. Um, and it's talking about, uh, like, other people's perception of him and... Um, this, this section I just adored. It says, Though he continued to be obliging and useful to them, they were uneasily conscious. This is the, the, the people that he used for his social advancement. Though he continued to be obliging and useful to them, they were uneasily conscious that he had used them as stepping stones to his social advancement. They were afraid he was a snob. And of course he was. He was a colossal snob. He was a snob without shame. Um, this whole section, I don't know. It just It just made me giggle and I loved it. Uh, in particular, when he had fixed his eye on his prey, he hunted it with the persistence of a botanist who will expose himself to dangers of flood, earthquake, fever, and hostile natives to find an orchid of peculiar rarity. Um, and that, my friends, is Elliot Templeton. It's a very Cloud Atlas statement, too. It is, it is. Um, but then my favorite kind of profound quote of the week is, um when so it's during larry's conversation with isabel um and it's just this line kind of in the middle of it that i find uh very important and says it's hard not to ask yourself what life is all about and whether there's any sense to it or whether it's all a tragic blunder of blind fate (laughs) didn't i say existentialism yeah no that's that's kind (laughs) of that's a neat summary of that of this entire first part Yep. Um, my favorite part in here is when Aunt Louisa and Elliot and the author are all scheming to get Isabel and De- uh, Larry to go on this picnic. And uh, so they cook up the idea of the picnic. And Elliot says, like, well, what are you going to put in the picnic? And Aunt Louisa says, stuffed eggs and a chicken sandwich. And Elliot says, nonsense can't have a picnic without pate de foie gras and then he goes into this elaborate like idea of what this picnic should contain mrs bradley says i shall give them stuffed eggs and a chicken sandwich elliot and then <laughs> uh and then isabel sort of defending this comments and i think this is a really funny observation larry eats very little uncle elliot said isabel and i don't believe he notices what he eats <laughs> <laughs> which like uh, you know, the, the author has before described Elliot or uh, described Larry as being very skinny, um, and so I think this idea of this person who just like eats but does not particularly consider like the quality of the food they're eating or like the type of food they're eating um, as like a good observation and probably in keeping with someone who's experienced like wartime trauma. Yeah. After you all right so uh favorite things non-podcast or uh racer's edge related for the week i think i'm still out for this one. <laughs> oh yeah okay 
I think yeah, no, I I I have not had uh, any other outside experiences other than stuff that I've been having going on. <laughs> okay, well, I'm just gonna give a quick shout out at the end of this podcast. Back when we were reading Cloud Atlas, it was the dead of winter, and I said, when you're making a podcast, gotta drink stouts. Yeah, drink lots of delicious stouts in the winter time. Guess what, guys? Winter's over. Summer's coming. It's a beautiful day in May. And stouts are out and shandies are in. Gotta You know what? Gotta drink that shandy. I'll go with you on that one actually, Sky. I've I've had a couple of summer shandies lately that have really hit the spot. But here's the key. Here's the key, listeners who may want to try a shandy this spring and summer on a nice warm evening. The everywhere these days at your local place to buy beers, you will find shandies that are pre-mixed. They're uh, you know, all in a can or in a bottle or on tap already and it's sold as a shandy. And those work, I suppose. But if you really want the shandy experience, if you really want a fine summer shandy, get yourself some light beer. It kind of doesn't matter what it is. Right now I am using Miller Lite. And you oh. pour that into a nice tall glass, and then get yourself some European-style sparkling lemonade. You need only about four to six ounces of the sparkling lemonade. And you pour that in with the beer... And that is so much better than the pre-bottle type. So delightful and thirst-quenching on a, uh, on, a, on a warm evening. Readers, you should really see the hand gestures that Sky is making as he's <laughs> Like Elliot this. Templeton, I enjoy the finer things in life. And one of those finer <laughs> things are a well-mixed shandy. And there you have it. Um, you heard it here first. Uh, yes, yeah, summer 2017. Stouts are out. Shandies are in. <laughs> I have been Sky, and I endorse this shandy. <laughs> this is my long-suffering girlfriend, Lauren, who has to deal with me when I say stuff like that. But uh, on the flip side, I do make her delicious shandies. He does. And you have been Katie. I have been Katie. Who I can only assume also enjoys delicious shandies, but you live very far away, so I don't get to make them for you. No, and I actually have, have, have never made my own, so I may have to oh, you take your recommendation. To. If you can find a place that will sell you San Pellegrino sparkling lemonade, that's a good place to start. But you can use basically any, like, European-style bottled sparkling lemonade. All right. Which I, I don't know how what your grocery options are out in uh, Fayetteville. I, they may or may not be easy to find. Um, actually, I'm pretty sure I can find uh, San Pellegrino. Yeah, San Pellegrino's okay. limonada is, is not too hard to find, and, and it makes an excellent shandy. Well, all right. Uh, perhaps by this time next week, I will have mixed my own shandy and can further comment. All right. Well, on that note, totally unrelated to the content of our podcast, this has been Interlibrary Loan. I'm Sky. I'm Katie. And I'm Lauren. Thanks for listening. And join us next week for part two of W. Somerset Moms, The Razor's Edge. And more shandies. <laughs> Bye, guys. <laughs> Enter, 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 library loan. Please rate us high, high, high on iTunes. Find us online at illbook.club. On Twitter, we are at illbookcast. Thank you to our generous, smart, beautiful, awesome Patreon donors. We couldn't do it without you. Okay, okay, okay. Back to robot sleep until next week. Today is, I uh, need to look at this. It's May 16th. Yay. May the 16th be with you. Yeah, uh, that's the no. thing that I've heard said often. Yes, it's, a, it's that classic phrase from Star Trek. Yes. <laughs> Indeed. That's so bad. There are 16 lights. Uh, uh, 16 candles? There are 16 candles. We just watched the um, the There Are Four Lights episode of Next Generation last week. So Nice. It was uh, really nice. good. It's very good. Very good. Really good. You know, we're going through TNG for the first time, actually. And, like, 
some episodes that are like famous episodes are kind of a letdown, and then other episodes are like, like really like worth it. Like what's that one? The Lauren really the... doesn't like Darmok. No, Darmok is so stupid. It's so dumb. <laughs> um, I do not understand why everyone freaking loses their shit over Darmok. Uh, but there are four lights. Really holds up. Was really good. That was good. Oh, all right. Yeah. Okay. Cool. Uh, all right. Now that we've done uh, a mini episode on. Next yeah, this is, our, this is our greatest gen hashtag greatest gen uh, fan cast. Um, <laughs> we've done we've done an about face on the content of this podcast. Yeah, we d- we decided that it's uh, that no one reads old boring novels, so instead we're just going to talk about the Star Trek: The Next Generation, like every other podcast on the internet. Oh, this isn't an old boring novel. Oh no, it's just a <laughs> it's it's just them romping around on the holodeck with some beloved characters from classic literature. <laughs>